Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The New Statesman. I'm Jeremy Cliff, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. And then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to David Broder. David is Europe editor of Jacobin, and he's also the author of the forthcoming book, Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy. And he joins us from Rome. Thank you for coming on the podcast, David. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I'm really pleased to have you here to have this discussion because it seems to me kind of digesting the aftermath of last Sunday's Italian election, in which, of course, Giorgio Meloni's post-fascist Fratelli d'Italia came first with over 26% of the vote, that a couple of confused takes have become quite widespread in the international media. The first, perhaps more predominant on the left, is the idea that there has been this sudden surge of fascist politics or neo-fascist politics in Italy that's come completely out of the blue. And the other, which is perhaps more common a bit on the right, is the idea that actually Meloni's a perfectly moderate, conventional, centre-right politician. And it seems to me that they're both wrong in different ways. And I think you're a great person to, to talk us through why, and in particular, to put this all in historical context. So to that end, obviously, I want to come on to the election result and the new government, which, of course, Maloney will likely lead. But first, let's actually go back and tell the story from 1945 onwards. I think that many people listening, their understanding of Italian fascism might well end in 1945 with the collapse of the Salo Republic, with Mussolini hanging from the roof of a Milan petrol station. But I think, obviously, one of the things that you bring to this is an understanding of, of the afterlife of Italian fascism in, in, in post-war Italy. So could you first of all tell us how Italian fascism re-emerged or reformed from the ashes of the end of the regime. I think it's important to say that the political culture of Fratelli d'Italia is very much focused on the tradition of the Movimento Sociale Italiano, MSI, a party founded at the end of 1946. And often the kind of idea that she's like an admirer of Mussolini or that the party harks back to the era of the fascist regime isn't true in the sense that the identity of the party is much more focused on the post-war 
experience of neo-fascism. The MSI was an openly fascist party throughout its existence, but its experience within the post-war Italian Republic as a party that took part in elections, which brought, although not exclusively, followed constitutional means of action and as a minority party within that republic, tells a quite different story than the idea that she's reviving the regime, precisely because it's the experience of a defeated minority and in the sort of parties a self-narration. There's a very strong sense of victimhood, of isolation, the idea that they were like criminalized as the MSI after the war. And they see this and also the last few decades as a kind of redemption from the marginalization they used to suffer. So to take it from the start, the MSI emerged out of several groups that began to organize already, actually already before the end of the war, basically by militants who had been in the Salon Republic, the Italian Social Republic, which is the final 19 months of of a fascist state in Italy, in northern central Italy, which was allied to Nazi Germany and fought against the parties. In July 1943, parts of the fascist establishment and the monarchy had broken with Mussolini under the pressure of the war. So the people who fought for Salah and who led, the, who led that state were fighting a, a sort of battle to the end alongside Nazi Germany. And as they would see it, a kind of uh, almost like a lost cause, but knowing they were going to lose, but they fought to the bitter end. Salah is called Salah because of the town on Lake Como from which it issued its kind of communiques and instructions and directives from the Ministry of Popular Culture. And the Under Secretary of State, the Ministry of Popular Culture, was Giorgio Almirante. Almirante was one of the leaders of Salah who managed to escape justice or being caught by partisans or by the new authorities after the end of the war. And there was a period between basically the defeat of the regime at the end of April 45, which of course includes Mussolini himself, many of his associates, even Amarante's boss at the Ministry of Popular Culture, where they, many of them were caught and executed by partisans or else handed over to the justice system of the, of the state itself. And up until the foundation of the Republic in June 1946, which was followed by an amnesty for many, but certainly not all, wartime crimes, a lot of former fascist personnel were in a grey zone. They didn't, you know, they didn't know whether they would fall victim to like popular justice or indeed uh, arrested. Many were arrested, but then escaped thanks to official indulgence. But Almirante spent this like year and a half on the run and then surfaced in uh, September 1946. And in December 1946, the MSI was founded. And then. Bringing the story forward, over the, over the subsequent post-war decades, how much of a taboo was there in Italian politics around the MSI, and I suppose relatedly around the legacy of Mussolini's regime in general? I think it's easy to imagine that like 1945 is a kind of cut-off point where after which everyone sees that fascism was like condemned by history and wrong. And but of course, lots of and the Republic itself after the war and particularly the left, who of course weren't normally in government, so now from 1947 during the Cold War, they would often tell this kind of story of the nation that united against the small clique around Mussolini and Nazi Germany, like an idea of the resistance as a really unifying national moment in which only a few were not included. And that image was added to by the quite weak herges of mid-ranking officials after the war. But actually already in the 1948 elections, the MSI 
got six MPs. There were already in the 1950s several cases of like local councils which depended on its Christian Democratic local administrations which required the MSI support. And the leader, the leadership of the time in the 1950s actually did seek to bring the party into a sort of, to become like a junior and external ally of the Christian democracy, to both bring the party more into the parliamentary game, even while remaining an openly fascist party. And in 1960, there was actually a Christian democratic government led by Fernando Tamburoni, which for want of other allies, when it sought a confidence vote, it was decisively supported by the MSI. The MSI votes were fundamental to keeping that government alive. And that produced an enormous backlash, allied to the fact the MSI wanted to hold its Congress that year in Genoa, which was a, a major sort of anti-fascist city, like an industrial and port city. So the kind of com combination of these events led to protest movements, strikes in several of the major cities. Some of the protests, which were themselves clamped down on police killing 11 of the participants at various points in Italy. And this government basically was felled, was brought down by that popular revolt, which even within the Christian Democrat party, there were many people opposed to this kind of integration of the MSI or this sense of leaning on it. And I think actually that moment, 1960, is the real moment when the MSI became a sort of marginalized party. I and mean, when we can speak of something like a cordon sanitaire, the more accurate Italian expression is constitutional arch in the sense of the range of parties that could possibly be included for government participation. And from 1960, that strategy for the MSI is really something they can't really even hope to follow anymore. I was going to ask, how long does that cordon sanitaire, such as it was, hold? Even into, there's lots of moments we can find where the MSI are able to integrate themselves into sort of like certain kind of movements in society that also include other forces. And they also under Almirante, so Almirante becomes leader again in 1969, tries to make this alliance with other conservatives and monarchists and so on. But the important thing really is like the Christian democracy just isn't interested in forming a national level uh, government with them. And that really constrains all of the possibility for anything they can do. And if one looks at the election results, if I have this right, they never really got more than about, what, five or so percent of the vote. Yeah, they actually peaked in the early 70s with about 8%. Uh -huh. But yeah, it's very much a, it's very much a party of, it's, it's, we have to think, like also when we talk about Milani, yeah? with, when we talk about the 1970s in Italy, we're talking about a period where there were terrorist attacks by other neo-fascist groups, which were often falsely attributed to anarchists and so on. But there are groups who wanted, who were pursuing a strategy of tension, who were trying to undermine Italian democracy with terrorism. And also the experience of the fascist regime is within one generation of memory. It is, the MSI is a party like without broad, without broad popular appeal because it's mm -hmm. dominated by men who are, who are associated with the experience of Salo, which indeed in various ways they, they openly defended. But yeah, I think that in the sort of Fratelli d'Italia, like self narration, they talk about this as if, as if there was this like anti-fascist domination where they were silenced, where they were victimized. A, a very big thing in, in its kind of memory culture is the kind of militants of the MSI who were killed during the violence of the 1970s, who they say are kind of like the equals of the victims of fascism itself. Also, the kind of victimhood culture also very heavily focuses on, on people killed in the, the very final days of World War II. 
even of certain representatives of the Solo Republic who had saved Jews, but were nonetheless yeah. killed by partisans and so on. So this like sense of victimhood is really the kind of glue of the identity and of the different sort of factions even within the MSI. And it's a striking constant when you look at Maloney's rhetoric today and how strongly she focuses on the idea that there are societal forces out to get her party and her and the left are out to get her and the judiciary and the financial sector and so forth. Talking about Maloney, so she she joins the MSI in 1992. And by 1994, the party that the MSI becomes is going into government with Silvio Berlusconi. Talk to us a bit about that period and particularly that interval from about 92 to 94. What sort of party was she joining and how did it change in the immediate aftermath? Okay, so let's talk about 1992. 1992 is the moment when the Cold War has basically just ended. The Communist Party has changed itself into the democratic left and basically broken with it, explicitly broken with Marxism, where there's a corruption scandal that breaks in 1992, known as bribes, which sees most of the sitting members of both houses of the Italian parliament come under criminal investigation. Like it's the explosion of a vast web of corruption. Of course, most of the MPs aren't actually ever convicted, but still this brings down the socialist and Christian Democrat parties of all. They're destroyed. So the three main parties of the resistance all collapse within the matter of two years, yeah? At the Liberation Day, 25th of April, anniversary of the resistance in 1992, Franco Cervello, who's a leader of the MSI, says, this is the end of the Republic born on the, of the resistance. We can now, after so many years where we fought alone, we can build the Republic we always dreamed of. And in this period, they're also like legitimized in a way by certain other figures, including actually the president of the time, Francesco Cossiga, who was a fought Christian Democrat, but fell out with his party a lot. And he himself adopts this rhetoric of the partyocracy, the corruption, and so on. So what we see really is a moment where the kind of the anti-fascist parties from the World War II period collapse. The Cold War is over, the communist enemy has basically fallen away. And for the MSI, and particularly its leader, Gianfranco Fini, it's a moment to redefine the party, to make it into something broader, which includes the sort of MSI tradition, but also other figures and forces. He's greatly helped in this endeavor by Silvio Berlusconi, who in even in the 1993 Roman mayoral election says that he would vote for Fini, the leader of the MSI, rather than the Green, Francesco Rotelli, who, who actually won. And then in January 1994, Berlusconi says, basically, the ex-communist left, men still bound to the past, they're coming back. They say they're progressives, but they haven't accepted liberal democratic culture. So I'm going to form a union of all moderates. And within that alliance, he includes both the Lega and the, the Lega Nord, as it was at the time, Northern Regionalist Party, and also separately the MSI. And they win the election in April 1994. And in then there's the first government, very short-lived, but which has some MSI ministers. Feeney also launches a kind of rebrand of the party, often compared to Bad Gordesburg, the, the sort of transformation of the German Social Democrats in the late 1950s. One might even say, though, that to draw a rather strained analogy, it's actually a little bit more the clause four moment of the Labour Party, in, particularly in the sense that there's a very big focus on the idea that the party rejects totalitarianisms of all kinds. It accepts like liberal democratic constitutional principles and that it's also a non-racist party and it condemns the Mussolini era like racial laws. The contradiction in this is it's like at the one hand saying we're like a non-racist party 
But on the other hand, we should limit immigration and drive up birth rates in order to prevent the change in the ethnic fabric of our nation. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it imports certain liberal reference points, including things like human rights, yet at the same time, a certain like fascist substratum remains. But there's also a bigger change, of course, when we talk about me and Milani joined in 1992, the generation who had fought in World War II are handing over power within the party. The level of violence in Italian society is much less than the 1970s. So there's like fascist ideas and reference points, but the form of organization has mm. changed. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From The New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
So that formation then of Berlusconi's Forza Italia, the Lega Nord as it was then, and the Alianza Nazionale, that goes on to define all of Berlusconi's governments up to 2011. Could you talk to us a bit about the role of the post-fascists in those governments and also their relationship with those other two main components, so both the Lega Nord and Forza? The MSA in 1995, dissolved itself into the Alianza Nazionale. That includes some other figures not from the neo-fascist tradition, like some like Catholic intellectuals, but actually really is dominated by former neo-fascists saying, now we're conservatives. And, you know, they compare themselves to things like the Spanish Partido Popular in the sense of a party that sort of ultimately stems from officials from the Franco era, but also clearly moves on from that. At first, really, the worst relations are between the Alia and the Lega. The Lega, being a northern regionalist party, maintained a certain anti-fascist rhetoric. And in the 1994 election, actually, although each of them were allied to Berlusconi, they weren't uh, allied to each other. So they divided up different seats to maintain an image of separateness. Is it true that the Lega sees itself as having roots in the partisans? Or is that just, is there any truth in that? Or is it party myth-making? It's, uh, it's <laughs> that of course, they're able to point to some figures who they have drawn from anti-fascist parties and traditions. So basically, after the election, which the right-wing parties win at the end of March 1994, when the government's being formed, there's the 25th of April, a liberation day, the, the celebration of the resistance, and there's a massive rally in Milan, stirred by kind of anti-fascist feeling. There's like a million people. And the Leganard leader, uh, Umberto Bossi, tries to join the, the demonstration, and he's chased away by the people on the march. And then the government's actually brought down by the Lega, who then join a kind of technical, sort of supports technocratic cabinet. And then they're actually outside of the alliance for most of the rest of the 90s. So in the late 90s, Umberto Bossi, often uh, the Lega Nord leader, often very uh, directly and angrily calls the Alianza Nazionale a fascist party. But then basically in 2001, they just go back into government with them anyway, as if nothing had happened. And also in 2002, Bossi and Fini, the leader of Alianza Nazionale, they together draw up one of what remains actually the main plank of like Italian immigration policy, which creates a lot of the kind of less repressive structures for like the removal of, of migrants. Also, an, a, a very important battle waged by the Alianza Nazionale specifically within those governments is to change kind of public memory culture around World War II. So one of the most indicative things of this is that in, in 2005, they introduce a day of memory for the Italians killed by Yugoslav partisans at the end of World War II. It's a thing called the Foibe. It's like a huge deal in the memory culture of the Italian right, far right. And really it says Yugoslav partisans conducted ethnic cleansing in the borderland at the end of World War II. And this is very often very directly compared to the Holocaust. So it's this victim culture. It's like we were the victims and the anti-fascist parties, the establishment didn't want to talk about it, but now we can finally say it. And a lot of like very prominent pundits and journalists writing quite trashy history books, but who are not neo-fascists, write the same thing, like including Bruno Vespa, who's the presenter of one of the most popular talk shows in Italy, Paolo Panza, who was a pundit who worked for papers across the political spectrum. Of course, it's not the case that the Alianza Nazionale as a junior partner in the governments work for the replacement or overthrow of Italian democracy. But the point is that it inserted its own themes and ideas within a right-wing coalition in which its ideas didn't necessarily distinguish itself that strongly. But to give an example, Silvio Berlusconi refused to take part in any resistance commemorations until 2009. So 15 years after he became 
uh, Prime Minister. Another big contradiction, of course, is that Gianfranco Fini, the leader of the Alianza Nazionale, actually eventually, having led his party into a merger with Berlusconi's party, 2009, it's called Popolo della Libertà, Berlusconi then Im- almost immediately expels Fini from the party. And Fini actually becomes much more of a kind of figure who's like in alliance with liberals and centrists and so on. Whereas most of the post-fascist base, including Milani, hang around. And then in 2012, split away to form Fratelli d'Italia. And then when they do create Fratelli d'Italia in 2012, they like violently reject Fini personally and his role in, as they see it, destroying the tradition of the Italian right, of the post-war right, what she called Milani. Milani, like in this like, interview in 2015, where she says Fini is the good luck charm for the Masons and the high finance, the powers that be who wanted to destroy the tradition of the Italian right, meaning the tradition wow. of the MSI, and she's going to rebuild it. Let's bring it forward to the present day then. How would you characterize Brothers of Italy in 2022? And what do you expect from it now that it is... Italy's most powerful political party and the likely leader of the new government. One of the things I mentioned earlier was that the MSI had to accept Italy's role as a partner in the Western alliance, and it, in effect, is a quite junior one. If we make a comparison with, say, Marine Le Pen in France, who, of course, doesn't come from a Gaullist tradition, but nonetheless, we can think there's a serious chance she could shift France's place in the international order and alliance system. I think that's not true of Italy and within the MSI culture, even though there's a certain anti-American culture and tradition, they accept or are at least able to accept Italy's current place in international institutions. So I think that the political culture of the party is much more focused on its internal enemies, particularly those who it calls communists, which include like a lot of very broadly progressive forces. So often, and they often, even actually having won the election, they have this kind of idea of the powers that be, the left, the globalists are like trying to crush and constrain them. So I think it's like a party which retains a lot of ideas and personnel from the past of the MSI, one that wants to be able to include open fascists within its ranks without outside criticism, as indeed the Berlusconi governments also did, even with forces more right-wing even than the, or more fascist even than Alianza Nazionale. Yeah, it's a party that wants to, that insists that we've grown up, we take part in democracy, we run in elections, we're not violent, and the kind of anti-fascist stuff you use against us, that doesn't apply anymore. You can't do that anymore. And they have success in doing, in saying that it's basically true. Like for three decades, those barriers have become increased. The idea that there's this kind of, the idea that there's some sort of like standard of anti-fascism has become a claim leveled by increasingly small parts of the center and center-left political camp. And which really doesn't, it doesn't change how sort of right-wing voters think or vote. And they just see it as the left is, has the left that basically has nothing to say. So it just levels these accusations, but ultimately who cares? So like even faced with like very direct evidence that there are fascists in Fratelli d'Italia's ranks now. So things like members hanging banners, which celebrate the slow Republic and its paramilitaries or fascist saluting, which is very common still at like commemorations of like fallen fallen, as they would say, fallen at the funerals of their like dead former members, fascist salute to send them off. But they would insist, that's just our political culture. This isn't a violent thing. So what's the problem? So I think it's like, 
there's a part of the weirdness of the, a lot of the like Anglophone media coverage of Fratelli d'Italia is this kind of idea, which is you call them fascists, but really they're, they're just like a normalized part of the center, right? Which millions of people vote for, but there's not really, a, <laughs> there's not any necessary contradiction between those two things. They can have fascist reference points and ideas and culture. And even of course, ideas, which aren't just drawn from the Mussolini tradition, like for example, great replacement theory, which is like a meme on the international far right. They can take part in conservative forums like CPAC in the United States, and yet also maintain and, and be a product of this past. My book is called Mussolini's Grandchildren, not because Mussolini is coming back because we have the fascist regime and so on, but precisely because following this tradition, the MSI, Alianza Nazionale Fratelli d'Italia, we can actually see how this political culture has changed over time. And that's not just a process of raking with the past or whatever, but like one which responds to like different expectations, different ways in which the population in general relate to political action, different ideas of the role of the state and so on, which also very influenced by changes in other parts of the political spectrum as well. One of the hallmarks of that, in fact, is that Fratelli d'Italia's economic ideas are like much less statist and interventionist than those of the MSI, even with different factions and so on, like in the post-war period. But part of the reason for that, of course, is that it basically just accepts a lot of the hegemonic ideas of our era. Of course, one of the ironies is precisely that it's coming to power in a moment when those ideas are, are heavily shaken. So then it, it tends to put together ideas of its parts of its own political culture with then broader changes in the, in the inter international uh, center right in a kind of um, conflictual and contradictory way. So for example, like openly saying globalization has failed, the liberal ideas have come to an end. Say Feeney in the early 90s would say, we also embrace liberal ideas. They scrap that. They say, this is like the death of the international republic of money that uprooted citizens and so on. We need a return to community and our civilization, our values, and so on. Then you look at the economic proposals specifically, then they just put together like various like free market ideas, plus a few like strategic interventions, which actually aren't particularly mm. ambitious or different from other conservative forces in other countries. So in light of all of that, what can we expect, do you think, from a government led by Meloni and Brothers of Italy? I expect Meloni will try and continue the balancing act, which she pursued already during the campaign, which is on the one hand to reassure uh, Italy's international partners and alliances to try and stabilize its position economically, while also showing to her base that she hasn't forgot who she is and that she's still the leader of the Italian right. So I think the, the government which forms, which is very likely to include all of the right-wing parties, on the one hand, try and signal a certain continuity, for instance, with Mario Draghi's economic policies and disbursement of European funds, but which will also set up narrations of big conflicts with the left, with migrant NGOs, with, and indeed proceed to a repressive policy with regard to migration. Malai has spoken of a naval blockade in the Mediterranean. I think we'll continue a combination of Italy's stability and reliability towards its international partners, its lack of radical or extremist ambition yet at the same time pursue a reactionary identity politics domestically, intended also to demonize its opponents and to present them as trying to thwart the democratic will. 
Of course, we can expect broader crises which will frame the government's action, including the war and the energy crisis. But the decisive thing from the political tradition is who will they choose to offload the impact of the crisis. A grim prospect, but I think one that we can certainly understand better for knowing the history of the neo-fascist and post-fascist traditions in post-war Italian politics. David Broder, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. And listeners, as a reminder, David's book, Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy, is out early next year. You can pre-order it with a 20% discount at a link that we'll be putting in the show notes. And the discount code is BRODER20, all in capitals. So if you want to read about this history in greater depth, then do take a look at that. This has been World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, please rate us and leave a nice review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thanks very much for listening and until next time. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.